Welcome to the 25th episode. I decided I wanted to use this episode as both a recap of the series so far and as a good entry point for new listeners. During this episode, I'll be summarising the key takeaway so far and which episodes to listen to if you want to dig in more. Welcome to the Better Return on Investment from Software Development Podcast. A podcast aimed at those that fund software development and those that work with them. In a series of short weekly podcasts, I, your host Mark Taylor, hope to educate and inform on why traditional management processes won't get you the best return on your investment. And along the way, I'll provide some advice on how to improve that. Let's start with the fundamentals. Every business is a technology business. It is my belief that all companies today rely on software, be that brought off the shelf or custom developed. We live in a world where it becomes almost impossible to operate without software. And over time, the shift to custom developed software is a natural one, as our businesses need more from that software. Something that gives them a competitive edge. So if you're involved in the management or leadership of an organisation, then you will likely be involved with custom software development, even if you are only on the receiving end of it as a user. Software development, along with technology in general, should now be as much a core executive skill as marketing, sales and finance. Without that understanding, our organisations will simply not be able to compete. We have to be taking software development seriously. So, assuming you have bought into the need for software development, the next step is to see it as an enabler rather than a cost. Many businesses I have dealt with know they require custom software to operate, but they begrudge the cost and the effort to build and operate it. They see it as a necessary evil and something to be managed down as much as possible. They are not looking at it as an enabler, as something that is transformational to an organisation when done right. So you should be investing time and money in innovation into that software. The question then becomes one of how to invest. Traditional management and project techniques are unfortunately poor ways of getting a good return on your investment. Many of us have built our careers using command and control style management. Very much theory X thinking, which would have us assume that our staff need several layers of supervision and management to be effective. We will have been in environments where Gantt charts are used to predict the course of a given project. Environments where we have weekly or monthly slide packs with red, amber, green status reports across a variety of projects. And we will be familiar with the failings these bring. No matter how good the Gantt chart or how detailed the slide pack, projects are constantly delivered over budget, late or not at all. And I've talked in depth why this is. We make a number of assumptions in building those plans. Let me correct that. We make a number of guesses in building those plans. Then when those guesses turn out to be incorrect, as they certainly will be, we, they, we lay the blame at the team delivering the plan. And how do we deal with that? We put further supervision and micromanagement in place. We push for more planning, more bureaucracy. Somehow we've been taught to ignore the actual failure and double down on it adding more of what is going wrong to the thing that is already going wrong. I talk about this in episode one, why it is difficult to get the best return on investment. 
In episode two, I talk about starting to change how we think about investment, that it's not about staff utilisation. I followed this with a discussion on why projects are bad for return on investment in episode three. Thinking in terms of projects with their Gantt charts and monthly slide packs, it's very much how we've done it traditionally. But projects force us to focus on very short-term aims. It's what a project is, and that forces a very short-term view on investment. Given our software systems have a much longer life than a single project, then our investment is automatically skewed. We simply aren't taking into account the total cost of ownership of that software system. Costs such as maintenance, licenses, and even de decommissioning at the end of its life. Along with that, our traditional project management approach is based on a series of guesses. Guesses which, somewhere in the project process, become commitments. We are guessing at the expected benefit of a project. We are guessing at the complexity of a project. We are guessing at the time and effort to deliver the project. However, the minute it is on a Gantt chart or a slide deck, deviation from that is considered a failure. I cover some of the reasons why establishing the time and effort to deliver a software project will never be any better than a guess in episode 4. I follow this on with a deep dive into why software estimates should be treated as guesses rather than commitments in episode 5. In episode 6, Introduction to the Minimum Viable Product, I start to look at thinking about software systems as a product, along with treating our changes in a much more experimental nature. Minimum viable product prompts us to treat everything as a hypothesis and to design the smallest experiment to prove or disprove it. This is very much using scientific thinking in terms of how we evolve our, our software systems, and indeed ultimately our organisation. I then back up minimum viable product thinking with complementary software development practices for episodes 7 to 10. In them, I introduce Lean, a set of principles originating in manufacturing to reduce waste and improve flow of work through the system. Agile, a set of principles originating from software development focused on better ways of developing software. Cloud, a utility method of commissioning computer services and systems. And DevOps, a set of principles and practices that is, to me, a natural successor to both Lean and Agile and relies heavily on the enabler that cloud provides. Lean, Agile, Cloud and DevOps are very important terms in modern software development. While we don't need to understand them in detail, each is a very deep subject in its own right, having a high level awareness of them is critical. The ideals they represent are crucial for the operation of a modern business. They teach us ways to adapt our business to not just cope, but thrive within the modern environment. But with them come change. In episode 11, I address a number of cultural concerns that these changes bring. Change can be one of the most difficult things to achieve in an organisation. Organisations, teams and even individuals can be reluctant to change. That's understandable, it can be scary. And I'm asking you to give up long-held beliefs, control and power. And that acceptance of change is probably one of the hardest hurdles to overcome. To help with the justification to make that change, in episode 12 I talk about the book War and Peace and IT, and in episode 13 the State of DevOps Report 2019. 
The State of DevOps Report is an annual survey of how organisations are succeeding in the adoption of DevOps along with the benefits it brings. The State of DevOps Report is based on substantial statistical rigour and I point to it often as evidence that great things can be achieved from DevOps. In the 2019 report it highlights that elite performers have 208 times more frequent code deployments, are 106 times faster to deployment, are 2,604 times faster to recover from incidents and have seven times lower change failure rates. The book War and Peace in IT is something I recommend every business leader to read. In the book, Mark Schwartz covers much the same ground as I do in this podcast series. But if I'm being honest, I'm very much in awe of how he does it. This should be considered mandatory reading. I then move into subjects that will come up during software development. Again, each is a major topic in its own right, and each episode I aim to provide enough of an overview that you are familiar of what it is, why your software development team should be using it, and the ROI benefits. In episode 14, I talk about software testing. Every software system developed will have bugs. That is a given. The quicker they are identified, however, the more cost-effective it is for you. It is much better for a bug to be identified minutes after a developer created it than after six months of production use. The difference financially to your organisation can be staggering. Traditional software development has often left testing and quality assurance to the end of the work, often with it being squeezed out when deadlines loom. I push for bringing that quality assurance work as early as possible to find as many bugs as early as possible. I introduce a number of types of testing and how they fit in to assist in that quality. I also tie that quality mindset back to lean, agile and DevOps practices and principles. In episode 15, I follow on with that quality objective by introducing post-release monitoring. While software testing is to give us confidence and reduce risk pre-release, monitoring is our safety net post-release. Again, we will have bugs that make it into production. That is inevitable. So again, the key is to identify them as quickly as possible, thus reducing their financial impact. I then talk about how its use gives us confidence in the overall health of the system and for providing us metrics, which our minimum viable product experiments can be targeted against. As Peter Drucker is credited with saying, begin quote, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it, end quote. In episode 16, I introduce the term technical debt, a useful way of reflecting technical problems within our systems using the analogy of financial debt. We all understand the idea of interest and the burden that increasing debt can put on an individual organisation. By equating problems in our software systems to a growing debt, it provides a shared language that could be useful for discussing those problems. Understanding that you are accepting an amount of ongoing debt to achieve a short term goal is a very powerful concept. You are then able to make a meaningful decision if it is correct to accept that debt for the goal. And you can start to get an idea of the interest that you are incurring over time, allowing you to manage it in such a way as it remains serviceable. In episode 17, I talk about how the size and complexity of a deployable piece of software matters to the ability to deliver value to the customer, and thus ROI on our software development. I introduce two architectural extremes, monoliths 
and microservices. Monoliths represent software systems that are not modular. While generally easier to understand, they can be complex to change. Microservices represent software systems that are modular. These are much easier to change, but are much more complex to understand. I talk about why software development teams may be talking to you about their software system in terms of monoliths and microservices, and why monoliths can be advantageous in obtaining initial market fit, but have shown themselves as considerable risk to an organisation as it tries to scale. In episodes 18 through to 22, I took us through a series of tools and practices that allow for the fast delivery of software and ultimately delivery of value to our customer. I wanted to cover some of the things that you really need to have in place from a technical level to help your development team to provide value to your customer safely and quickly. First of these was source control, the system for storing the source code that we invest so much into to produce. Source control provides us with the security of knowing who did what and when. Once our software code is stored in source control, it is then picked up by continuous integration. Continuous integration automatically verifies that the software code builds and passes our automated tests. It ensures that any problems from multiple developers working together is identified quicker, allowing for much more cost-effective resolution. As Martin Fowler describes it, begin quote, Continuous integration doesn't get rid of bugs, but it does make them dramatically easier to find and remove, end quote. And easier to find and remove is better for ROI. Following that, our code can then be deployed by a button press by continuous delivery. Continuous delivery automates what is often a complex, expensive and error-prone activity, deploying of our software systems into production. Through automation, continuous delivery provides us with the confidence that we can deploy our software system into production whenever we want. It's our choice. We just press the button. Continuous deployment takes that one step further by removing the button press. It completes the pipeline that allows our development team to save changes into the source control system and have them in front of our customer within minutes. As I phrase it, one small step for deployment, one giant leap for an organization. This really changes the flexibility and agility of an organization. It really supports our ability to carry out multiple minimum viable product style experiments per day. I then close out that mini-series with a discussion on how to handle incomplete code. By approving the flow of our software code from source control into production, we haven't magically removed the time it takes for our developers to produce the software code in the first place. While we certainly will see benefits in the overall return on the work, due to the fast deployment and customer feedback, development is still a problem-solving activity, and doesn't suddenly condense from being six months to six hours but I still advocate for putting incomplete code into our flow, into source control, through continuous integration, delivery and deployment, and ultimately into production. The value we get from doing it is too great to ignore. So I cover ways to handle that incomplete code using techniques like feature toggles and deployment rings to expose, to expose the new code to only those people that should see it. I then round out the series to date with a discussion of two development practices that will seem very much at odds with the traditional development practices. Pair programming in episode 23 and mob programming in episode 24. 
both practices initially come across as prohibitively expensive by having multiple developers do the work of one. I reiterate that great return from software development investment is not achieved by focus on developer utilisation. It is from the value that the resulting software provides to our customer. I talk about how more eyes on the code helps produce better quality, better design, better supportability and faster delivery. I also talk about how it's a great way to learn and an enjoyable way to work. And that brings us up to date. I hope you're enjoying and receiving benefit from this series. If you are, or even if you're not, reach out to me on Twitter, at RedFolderMark. I'd love to receive feedback on the series, along with areas for improvement. I've already got plans for the next few episodes. And I'll probably do another recap when I reach the 50th episode. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been hosted by me, Mark Taylor. It has been produced by Redfolder Consultancy, a consultancy that can help you achieve better return on your software development investment. You can contact them or sign up to the mailing list at red-folder.com or you can reach out to me at Twitter at redfoldermark. Next episode... I'm going to start a mini-series on recruitment. Recruitment is singularly one of the most important roles of management, but one I find poorly invested in.